Well, it's so good to be with you here. Uh, I can feel a little uh, jitteriness down here in my lower abdomen. Uh, I haven't given a, a talk in person in Zendo in the, over a year and a half. In fact, I got out my my Dharma talk wrapper that was made for me by Molly Long when I was ordained, and I hadn't used it. And I opened it, and it has the notes from a session I led in California about five days before the stay-at-home orders began. And I thought, my goodness, we have really been through a lot, my friends. Uh, as, a, as a human race and as a planet, we got like animals coming out of the out of the woods because there aren't people around. Well, it's starting to change back, but oh, amazing. And we're still here, many of us, and we've lost many people. We can hold them and all have loved them in our hearts. So today I'm offering a talk called uh, In This Very Fathom Long Body. It's a quotation from a Polycanon Sutra. So this is going to be a talk about knowing the body as a practice of liberation. And, uh, you know, when I say liberation, I like to, it's one of my words for using what we're doing here. I'm talking about being free from suffering. That's, that's what liberation means in a Buddhist context, just in case you're confused or if I sound confusing. So yeah, knowing the body, and by knowing the body, having a deeper sensitivity and caring for whatever emotions are present. Compassion. The basis of my practice, and I think it would be great if it was the basis of your practice, because I think it would, it would be good. So, you know, and as we become uh, aware of the body, um, the idea isn't to um, get really into it and be like, ooh, no, I want to always give it something it likes. It doesn't work out because it gets a lot of things it doesn't like, guaranteed. Sorry to say. <laughs> um, so this isn't about hardening our sense of the body. So we're like, oh, I've got it all figured out. My body is like this. I really looked at it a lot and now I know. No, this is not about objectifying the body. Objectifying is the, is the very problem. This is about letting awareness settle so we can begin to just experience the flux of sensations that we think of as a body. So knowing it from the interiority, from the interiority of sensation, and just letting that be a part of the total field of awareness, which includes for some of us, leaves and walls, sounds, feelings, thoughts. <clears throat> so uh, I'm taking as my text <laughs> the Rokitasa Sutta, Sutta, which is a Pali Canon Sutra. So the Pali Canon is the earliest layer of Buddhist teachings we have. <coughs> and I'm going to paraphrase it, so I'm going to cut out the whole middle section and just give kind of the, the opening and the ending. 
So Rohitasa asked the Buddha, uh, is it possible, Lord, by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear? <clears throat> the Buddha said, I tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. But at the same time, I tell you that there is no making an end of suffering and stress without reaching the end of the cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> Yet it is within this fathom-long body with its perception and intellect that I declare that there is a cosmos, the origination of the cosmos, the cessation of the cosmos, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the cosmos. Man, I guess all religious traditions are weird, but we, we definitely qualify, I think, because I mean, what is going on here? You can't go, you can't go anywhere where you're gonna go beyond things coming into being and passing away. The, the root source of human suffering, things come into being that we don't like and we suffer, they pass away when we like them and we suffer. This is the basic teaching of Buddhism. But we can be free of that. Also the basic teaching of Buddhism. So uh, suffering in this tradition are associated with things coming into being and passing away with impermanence. And, and with our attachment to those things. So oftentimes the emphasis is on learning to not be uh, reactive to them. So it's like things come up and you're like, oh, it's like this. Instead of, ah, oh, what do I have to do with this? The body to be able to be like, oh, it's like this, jittery. Not to be like, oh my gosh. I can just be like, wow, jitteriness. What's that? So, um, so this, you can't go somewhere. He's saying, this tradition says you can't go somewhere where you're going to get out of this situation by traveling. But then he says, but I'm telling you, what I'm teaching is suffering and how to not suffer. Because this is Buddha, that's what he does. And he says, uh, I'm saying you can do this. Um, and I'm saying there's no way to do this without reaching an end of this cosmos, which you can't get out of by traveling. But I'm telling you, you can do it right here. I'm doing it right now in this body. The weirdest part of this is the Buddha relentlessly says, I'm only teaching you from my own experience. I already have reached the end of the cosmos, and the cosmos is ended in this body right now in this conversation with you. Whoa, what is going on? And you know, if you're ever like one of these people like, well, the Pali Canon is so dualistic. Then I know Mahayana would get really cool and non-dualistic. Well, I'm sorry. It's already in there. This non-dual teaching is in there early on. <clears throat> so the cosmos in this formulation he's saying is substituted for dukkha. So in the Four Noble Truths, it says there's suffering that arises. There's a reason that arises. 
there's a, it can end and you can do a path to end it. That's the basic first teaching of Buddhism. And here, instead of saying dukkha, suffering arises, is the cosmos arises. So what's cosmos? I don't know. We've got to call Carl Sagan or something. <laughs> uh, I think it means like time and space. Because he's talking about traveling. And actually, the part of the sutra I cut out is this god he's talking to. It's a deva. By the way, if you think like Buddhism is all like, oh, it's just very rational. This is a conversation between Buddha and a deva, which is a deity. Um, and anyway, this deity is like, I believe you because I can, one step of mine is like several hundred meters. And I just ran for hundreds of years to try and get to the end of the universe, and I couldn't do it. So you're right. So, uh, so what's going on here? Well, there is no objective cosmos or time. That's the basic idea of Buddhism, and actually it's the basic idea that's presented by contemporary physics. So I'll quote first Einstein, time and space are modes by which we think and not conditions in which we live. Surprise! They seem pretty real, I know. Stephen Hawking, histories of the universe depend on what is being observed. Contrary to the usual idea that the universe has a unique observer-independent history. So uh, this is a commonality between um, what uh, contemporary physics are saying. Who knows what they'll say in 100 years? If you're like, no, we're wrong. It's totally Israel. I don't know. But uh, this, these people are saying something very similar to what the Buddhist is saying in this sutra and what Mahayana teachings say is there's not an absolutely real cosmos, which is uh, time and space. Our mind creates time and space the way we experience them. And we suffer because we construct them in a way that causes us to suffer. And we don't have to. And we can be free of that. That's the basic idea. This is a leap that uh, Einstein and Hawking don't make. <laughs> but that's okay. So... <sighs> It's a basic idea of Mahayana Buddhism that emerges from this early Buddhist tradition. In, in an early Buddhist tradition, there tends to be more emphasis on letting go of your attachment to phenomena. Uh, and in this sutra, which presages the Mahayana, and in the Mahayana, the emphasis is on seeing that there aren't actually things at all. Actually experiencing the fact that there aren't real objects. There's objectification causes harm. It's a tendency of consciousness to objectify, turn things into objects and make them into things and be like, oh, I can hold on to this. And it never works. Sad to say, everything passes. Or I'm going to get rid of this. And lo and behold, something else keeps showing up. I can tell you, I have invented whole new neuroses in my path of practice that I didn't, you know, I was like, well, I'm getting over all my neuroses. And then 10 years later, I'm like, I've got a whole new one I didn't even know about. I used to relentlessly push everyone away with every possible means, and now I'm clinging to them desperately. <laughs> <laughs> so things come and go. But we can go beyond space and time. Can go beyond space and time. And the weird thing is, um, we don't have to go beyond space and time because they already aren't real. 
this is why we have the idea that, that realization, awakening, Buddhahood are imminent. Because all the things that we think are real that causes us to suffer already aren't real. It's already true. But where are you I know that's kind of it seems improbable. You're like, I'm in this by the one body. Pretty sure I was really annoyed this morning or whatever. Uh, yeah. So this is it's been it's a little mysterious, I know. And we have lots of practice instructions for how to get closer to seeing that things aren't what we think they are. Dogen Zenji says, uh, practice intimately and return to where you are. Practice intimately and return to where you are. You will see that nothing at all has on changing self. Practice intimately. What does that mean to get? To not have a practice that's about trying to get away. Is your practice about trying to make yourself into something that you're not? It doesn't have to be. To objectify yourself and turn yourself into an object that needs to be manipulated. It's not necessary. And just come in here like this body. Range of sensation. This feeling, these sounds, this person, intimacy, where we are. It's paradoxical. It's ridiculous to say return to where you are. You're already here. That's what it means to be there. And yet we know what it feels like to come home. Don't we, those of us who practice, that feeling being so alienated from our experience and from ourselves, and we know that just moment of being like, ah. Oh, this body, this voice, this feeling. <clears throat> so, uh, <clears throat> emerging from this idea that it's in this Fathom long body. Fathom, oh, by the way, fathom means six feet. I think, uh, you know, uh, sometimes it means something longer, so it's a word that very things. So that might have been confusing all along. Who does not say I'm 300 meters tall? <laughs> Just within the specificity, the actual particularity of this body. So this isn't about destroying identity, particularity, just this brain. <clears throat> so this idea that um, the transcendence of space and time occur directly within the embodied experience um, runs throughout uh, Mahayana literature. And it's one of the most distinct and sort of summarized expression of it is what's called the three bodies of Buddha teaching, which is a teaching from the Yogacara tradition. So those of you who have attended a session have in, invoked the three bodies of Buddha, because when the servers walk in the room to bring the food, we say, Vairo Chana Buddha Pure Dharma Kaya, Loko Chana Buddha Complete Samboga Kaya, Shakya Muni Buddha Myriad Nirvana Kaya. All 
throughout space and time. So the Dharmakaya is the absolute body. The Sambhogakaya is the bliss body. And the Nirmanakaya is the manifestation body. So Nirmanakaya refers to like the fathom long body. We have, there's like a historical Buddha who said some stuff. We actually don't really know what, what they said, but, um, but uh, we have some records of it. And we sort of understood this as like a person who walked around all the stories of like, he walked from here to there. He went and begged for breakfast. He sat under a tree for a while and someone came to him for help and helped him. That's like how the stories go. <laughs> um, so that's like a, that's the Nirmanakaya. It's like, oh, this is just a body. As we understand bodies, they're separate from everything else. They have duration, they live for a certain number of years. They get sick. They feel well, they do stuff, it's cool. So this is a conventional understanding of the body. The Buddha has a Nirmanakaya. But they also have a Dharmakaya, which is the Dharma body, which is the fact that the Buddha had realized that there was no space and time right there. And so uh, an easy way, the easiest way to think of this is what made, there was a person named Siddhartha Gautama. And at a certain moment, that person claims to have been like, I have now awakened. And what that awakening was, was realizing there was no separation between them and anything else. That's what Buddha is, the awakening to the fact that there is no alienation. There is no separation. So this is the basis on which I can say with authority in this tradition that you are Buddha. Because Buddha is the non-separateness of everything. So you can't get away from your Buddhahood, which is kind of a bummer. Because you're like, couldn't I just get away with doing some crappy stuff? And you're like, oh no. If I'm Buddha, that really isn't cool. That really isn't cool. So the Dharma Dharmakara is this beginningless, endless, non-arising, non-passing away, non-spatial, inalienated somethingness that is inherent in anything that appears to be separate. It's the non-separate of anything, non-separateness of anything that you think is separate. So this is the whole basis on which you get Mahayana teachings where it's like, it sounds like, are they like saying like Buddha is everywhere? How does that work? Well, this is how it works. Everything is empty of separateness. So everything can't not be Buddha. Too bad. <clears throat> so the Sambhogakaya is the fact it, the Sambhogakaya is basically the embodied state of realizing that all your ideas about separation and duration aren't real. And so it feels really good. Blissful. Sambhogakaya is the bliss body. And, uh, and so, you know, the Sambhogakaya is like the ability to just show up and be like, it seems like this right now. This is what it seems like. Wow, here we are. How can I elevate the well-being of everything here as best I can? Because it's so great to be here. So this is associated with bodhisattvas, like, because they go, I'm not going to disappear into nirvana. I'm not going to disappear into some uh, place separate from everyone else. I'm going to choose to really look at this illusory world, these apparent manifestations, and say, I want to be here with these people, even though, frankly, sometimes you got to admit it looks pretty messy. Look, look around, and it's like, oh, our own hearts. Our societies, our cultures, people suffer so much. So this is this is about choosing. 
and realizing the joy of choosing to be right in the flux of that. So probably the weirdest thing about the <laughs> about this teaching is that the the uh, the like fathom long body, the five and a half foot tall person who's like, yes, I have these bodily sensations. Like we, I suspect all of us have a sense that we're have bodily sensations that are in a bonded frame and separate from other things. That's my guess. Um, that's that's the illusion. And the real thing is that that isn't true. So that's pretty startling. In fact, I, a lot of times I'll hear a lot of people say, well, emptiness is cool to talk about, but let's talk about reality. We live in reality. It's very common. This teaching just really, really doesn't say that. It says emptiness is what is real. It's dharmata, it's tatsata, it's tafarta, all those two terms which are synonymous with emptiness explicitly mean realityness, trueness, thusness. It's kind of startling. But I don't think we should pretend that it isn't as challenging as it is, this teaching. Well, the thing is, it doesn't matter that, it doesn't mean the nirvana kind of doesn't matter. That wouldn't make any sense. Why would we have a vast record of teachings by just an embodied person if we're like, that doesn't matter? Why would the record of the Buddha be one of saying, it feels like I've gone beyond the cosmos in this very body, so see you later. Why would it be in conversation with Rokatasa? Why could he meet over and over every single person who came to ask for help? He met them. Every once in a while in the records, he'll say, I'm begging for food right now. This is an inappropriate time for me to teach. A couple times he says, I'm really sick, and I need to lie down. It's not a good time for me to teach. A couple times he says, all you monks are arguing a lot and talking too much. So I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> all those things happen in politics. <laughs> but basically, hundreds, probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands of times, we have this record of what he does. He gets up in the morning, begs for food, practices meditation, and meets people where they are as best as he can figure out how to help them be free from suffering. And this is what it looks like when we realize the reality that space and time are illusions. And we can only realize that within our particular moment of feeling like this body is like this, these feelings are like this. And this is the relationship. <clears throat> So I would like to uh, do a little uh, meditation practice together. It'll be like a guided meditation. I'll really be focused on, on the body, on our bottom long frame. <coughs> so you can just find whatever posture is good for you, standing, sitting, are good. And I'm just going to invite you here to allow the eyes to close. We'll be using a 
uh, type of practice. It's usually done with eyes closed. So here at MZMC, Zazen is an eyes open practice, and that's great. But all these change. So I'm just going to invite you to let your awareness sink down into the lower abdomen, feeling the sensations of breathing. Feeling the body or could say bringing attention to the sensations that are in the body in the breath in the belly. So Bringing attention to things is a way of demonstrating that we care. You don't have to like evoke some special kind of compassion. I'm just inviting you to recognize that it is already an act of compassion to bring your attention to the breath in the body. And I invite you, although you can't quite make this happen, to evoke the sense that you are not observing the sensations of the body. But that just awareness is sinking down into the body. It might feel like a sense that awareness is flowing down from the head, down into the belly. If this doesn't make any sense to you, that's okay. Don't <laughs> And if there are ideas about the body or about other things, that's fine. But just actively bring the attention to the body itself. Just feeling. Mere sensation. And allowing this sense of feeling the breath in the lower abdomen to expand so that we are feeling the whole of this spasm long body. So feeling from the feet all the way to the top of the head, fingertips.
maybe you'll notice particular sensations here and there attract attention, that's fine. Areas of tension or relaxation or just all kinds of sensations. Just noticing. Just as we expanded awareness from the belly outward to the whole body, just let awareness be big enough to include any feelings or emotions that arise. I'll liken this mindfulness of emotions to looking at the surface of a lake. <clears throat> Just gazing out with your attention. Not waiting or expecting or trying to catch or see any particular thing. There may be a moment where the feeling shows itself calm, sadness, or joy, or despair, or rage, or a fear. Just like on that lake, you might see a fish jump. Bunch of waves move across the bottom. Duck. Landing. Feel like you've gotten lost, just bring the attention to the breath and the belly. And then perhaps expanding to include the whole body and any feelings that arise.
All right, well, I'm going to invite you to open your eyes and begin to move the body. Feel free to adjust the posture, stretch, reorient yourself to the group. So here's the thing. It is not possible to get ungraspability. So we're just invited into the fullness of experience beyond our ideas about it. And we may just see that it's already beyond our ideas about it. So this practice is kind of slow. Like so I did 10 minutes and I didn't see the ungraspability of all phenomena. That kind of meditation is terrible. <laughs> well. <clears throat> I will brag and say, I think I'm good at doing zazen. And this is why I just come and do it every day. That's it. That's my training to just keep coming and embodying this practice and trusting. <clears throat> and this embodying the practice is to me about embodying the bodhisattva vows that we'll close this channel with. This is, I am here in large part because the root idea of the Zen tradition is one that aligns with deeper values that I had before I came to Zen, which is that um, I want to be part of everyone being well. And, you know, this tradition keeps reminding me to say, take up the vow, remind yourself. We want everyone to get free together. Not to just get free for myself, not to fix somebody else. <laughs> also completely impossible, unfortunately, but to get free together. So, uh, and this is done, you know, through embodiment and through relationship. This is what the tradition shows us, conversation, meeting people. So uh, I'm just going to talk about a couple uh, examples that are inspiring to me. One is uh, in about 10 days in this room, uh, we'll be having uh, something called the Minnesota Intersanga Ethics and Leadership Summit. So this is, uh, we got a grant at MZMC from the Hemera Foundation, as part of their Healthy Buddhist Communities Grant, to host a conference that will involve uh, about 30 Buddhist leaders from about 10 different communities. And we'll all come together and develop relationships because relationship is the ground of liberation. And we'll be receiving training, we'll be sharing practices and also receiving training in how to understand how power works in communities and be able to uh, learn better how not to abuse power, how to use our authority in a way that's actually ethical. So I'm really stoked. People, uh, <laughs> working on this for like two years and uh, I'm just really looking forward to be, being with the people being with the people and frankly uh, there's a little fear because you know uh, people have experienced really profound abuses of power especially within Buddhist communities so there's, there's work to be done so uh, yeah 
And that, the, oh, the, the reason I'm bringing this up here is one, it's relational, and two, it's very much the training we're getting called right use of power training is a very embodied training. The thing I remember the best about one time that I received it is the trainer, Peg Syverson, had me facing this person who's such a wonderful guy. And we had to do this thing where one person could do this and you had to move your body towards it. So we'd all agreed. And as long as they're doing this, you have to keep moving closer. <laughs> and it was very subtle. And he, I mean, at one point, I mean, we were like this. And it was like, this is weird. It's like, there's like weird erotic, scary stuff in here. And there's, I don't like my power being violated. Wow. Just simple feeling it in the body intimately together and seeing what's going on there. Really rich. So uh, that's happening. Um, I also just want to bring in the voice of, uh, you know, someone who I think both expressed the Bodhisattva well, really beautifully in words and in action, and that's Fanny Lupamer, who famously said, nobody's free until everybody's free. And other people have said very similar things. And in a way, it's like what Mahayana Buddhism says, but she said it pretty succinctly. Nobody's free until everybody's free. The Bodhisattva vow says, there's not you and a cosmos out there. There's not you and other people. That's an illusion. There's somethingness, and we're here within it, and we can offer something that's liberative. It won't be controlling things. That's not liberative. <clears throat> so anyway... Uh, she said, nobody's free till everybody's free. If you don't know Fanny Lehammer, she's one of the founders of the Student, student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee um, and just a, an amazing racial justice activist, a major uh, leader in the um, Freedom Summer. Um, just reading, I just can't, uh, I can't not do this. Reading one sentence from the, the Wikipedia page, she was extorted, threatened, harassed, shot at, and assaulted by racists including members of the police, while trying to register for and exercise her right to vote. Um, she was actually hospitalized for almost a month. She received a forced hysterectomy, so she's never able to have biological children. Um, it was just an amazing amount of violence and suffering that she experienced, and yet she just kept showing up. Nobody's free until everybody's free. That's amazing. If you did that to me, would I not be like, get out of my... <laughs> well, yeah, I don't have enough, I don't have words that I can use in this space. <laughs> so, wow, how amazing are human beings? How amazing was Fanny Lou Hamer? <clears throat> we have a uh, teaching that's central to Mahayana practice. Our main motive uh, frame for how practice works is called the Six Paramitas, which many of you studied last year. And one of those Paramitas is Kshanti which sometimes translated as patience. But what this means is the ability to keep practicing no matter what. So Kshanti is, well, this patience is one that's like, you keep going, man, the world is so messed up. And you just keep practicing. Because it doesn't, doesn't sometimes you want to be like, never mind. I did 400 million retreats and I'm still just a bozo. <laughs> Or, you know, I, I, my friend is like, I flew all the way down to Florida to campaign for this presidential candidate and we lost. I'm never being involved in politics again. That's real. Shanti is to say, no matter what, 
no matter how extreme, I will keep practicing. And to practice in this tradition is to embody nonviolence, non-control, compassion with your own self, with other people, with whatever arises. Fanny <clears throat> Lehimer once said, if I fall, I'll fall five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom. <laughs> in this fathom-long train, if I fall, I'll fall five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom. And what, what was her manner of fighting? It was to practice disciplined nonviolence. Disciplined encounter where she showed up no matter what and said, I will embody love and compassion. It's possible. It's possible. This isn't like some weird dream that's in a book 2,000 years ago. People do this stuff. Well, it is a joy to be here doing it with you right now. And the form of doing it has been me talking and you listening, for which I am grateful. But I will be very grateful if this involves some of you talking and me listening.